everybody, and welcome to another episode, our first summer episode of Intention is Everything. I am your host, Karen Frazier. With me is my co-host, or I should say I'm your co-host, Karen Frazier, so I don't sound more important than Cheryl. I'm your co-host, Karen Frazier, and with me, as always, my good friend and co-host, Cheryl Knight-Wilson. Hey, Cheryl. Hey, Karen. Welcome to summer. I know it's, it's, we're headed for a heat wave this weekend. Apparently it's, you know, I live in Western Washington where it's supposed to be temperate, right? And I was just in South Dakota. We were just on our trip. And when we were in South Dakota, we were talking to this lady in a store in Sioux Falls. um, And she was saying, oh, well, where are y'all from? Because apparently we didn't sound like we were from around those parts. And I said, (laughs) well, we're from Washington state. And she said, oh, are you looking for a new place to live? Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah, and I said, no, we're just on vacation. And she said, well, why would anybody want to live out there in the land of the liberals is basically what she said to me. Yikes. Oh, Oh, yeah, I know, I know. And so, but anyway, and so I was telling her, look, it's so temperate in Washington state. You know, we have maybe three or four days in Western Washington over 90 degrees. And we have maybe three or four days, you know, like really, really cold days. And she and and the young man that we're working with her were both just looking at me like, what? (laughs) (laughs) So, and now it's made a liar out of me because we're, we're heading into a stand of several days over a hundred. So happy summer. Happy summer. Happy summer. Anyway, so I am excited to talk to our guest today. She's somebody that I've talked to before. And we're going to actually talk about some issues related to mental health, which I think is so overlooked and um, and kind of underrepresented and stigmatized. And she is big into destigmatizing mental health, which I love because I have a lot of mental health and my issues in my family. And so I I love that there are people that are, are, I don't want to say normalizing it because I don't like that term. I don't like the term normal. Um, So anyway, I will let you introduce her because apparently I am just rambling on like a, you know, like a train running off the track. So why don't you introduce our guest? We'll bring her on and then we'll go from there. You're doing great, Karen. You're doing great. I am also excited to talk to our guest. Let me tell you a little bit about her. Her name is Kimberly Berry, and she is the founder of Being Unnormal. It's a coaching and consulting group that assists people navigating the world of mental health. She also hosts the Being Unnormal podcast, which explores various topics within the mental health community. Kimberly also has over 20 years of corporate, nonprofit leadership and small business experience. She's a sought after public speaker who has spoken in front of a wide range of audiences about a variety of mental health topics. And I think this is a really cool thing that she does. She produces a mental health summit that tackles tough subjects like suicide and anxiety. And in addition to consulting, she works with what she works one-on-one with coaching clients and offers a coaching series specifically for parents who are struggling with their child's mental illness. So this is all great stuff that I'm excited to talk to you about today, Kimberly. Welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Lady Cheryl and Karen, uh, for having me on the show. I'm really excited to be here. I, I know it's, it sounds silly to be like, I'm really excited to be here and talk about things like mental health and suicide and depression, but it's really my passion and my life's work. So thank you so much for having me on the show. Yeah, and it's it's so important. And I don't know if the last time we had talked, if I had had a family member who had attempted suicide recently yet or not. But I have a family member who just recently attempted suicide. And I mean, very, very seriously, he tried to hang himself. And so this is something that has come rushing to the forefront of my consciousness as a result, because it's really come home. And um, it's been interesting because I have like, I'm not identifying him, right? So that's the, the starting thing, because there's such a stigma around it. But it's been interesting, and even the people that I've shared it with that I, I really trust, their first response is, <gasps> and um, how, you know, because it is so stigmatized. And so I don't even know what my question is, other than that, 
you know, where do you go from here? Where do you go with that? Well, that's, um, so first and foremost, I am so sorry to hear that you've had this event happen um, in your family. And, you know, we don't have these conversations enough about suicide and suicide prevention, but yet suicide is one of the leading causes of death, especially for adolescents. It's the number two cause of death. So these, these things are happening behind closed doors and hushed tones and, you know, people are um, maybe, like you said, talking to a couple of people because of the stigma, the misconceptions and misinformation that was out there about suicide. I was just actually on a suicide uh, prevention training. Um, it was actually the third, it is the third anniversary of being on normal. That was on Monday. And I just kind of joked around, well, to celebrate, I'm going to be in the suicide prevention training because that's that's what that's how I celebrate things. Um, but there's some when you said this, there's some interesting um, there was a slide that was talked about during that training about suicide survivors and a suicide survivor, is someone who has lost a loved one to death by suicide. So although, thank goodness, your family number did not complete um, we don't talk about like what happens to the family members, the caregivers, the loved ones that are left behind. And these stats were really interesting to me. Um, at, when someone, you know, a suicide survivor, right, the number of suicide survivors, it says, you know, six blood relatives are directly affected by each suicide. So when we think of, you know, suicidality and the person that completes, you know, then we, we don't tend to think about there are six people directly affected by that suicide. There's one suicide every 12 minutes in the United States, which means there are six suicide survivors made every 12 minutes. Holy so, crap. yeah, so um, that's significant, right? One in every 62 people in the United States is a suicide attempt survivor or survivor of, you know, someone who has lost a loved one by death from suicide. That's one in 62, go to the grocery store, go to a movie theater, right? I mean, maybe, you know, back in the day, you know, if you were to go to a movie theater and see, uh, see a movie, there'd be a handful of people in that theater that have been affected by suicide in their immediate family, or maybe they themselves were a survivor. 20% of us will have a suicide in our immediate family. 20%, almost a quarter of the population in the United States will have a suicide in their immediate family. 60% of us will personally know someone who dies by suicide. And there's no typical suicide victim. Uh, individuals of all creeds, races, incomes, ages, and educational levels die from suicide. So this isn't, um, you know, something that happens to poor people or somebody, something that happens to um, non-educated people. Um, this, this is a cross, truly across all spectrums of humanity. And suicide risk is greater in survivors. So that means there's a fourfold increase in children when a parent dies by suicide. And a great unfortunate example of that. And although it's, you know, it is, it's, it was not necessarily a suicide, but an overdose. If you look at Whitney Houston and then her daughter, Bobby, right? When you see the, the, the long-term effects, you know, of, of, of suicide, that risk factor increases in children. And so, you know, suicide is happening. And one of the biggest myths, you know, and this is kind of these legacy myths about mental health that we're, you know, so, so strongly fighting now is that if you talk about it, it will happen. And that's absolutely not true. We know that more, the more conversations that we have about suicide, like you said, you know, not using the word normalizing and hence that's the name of my, um, the name of my business is being unnormal because it is kind of the reclamation of there is no such thing as normal. And when you have a mental health event happen, your normal shifts forever. You live in a new normal, which is something I think a lot of people post pandemic can now start to identify with, which I hope we can start to open doors to new levels of compassion and empathy for mental health. But, you know, we look at, you know, 
this myth of don't talk about it. If, if somebody's thinking about harming themselves or ending their life, if you, if you say it out loud, you might plant the seed in their head and they may attempt. And that's absolute rubbish and we know that. And in fact, having the conversation and asking the hard question, do you have a plan to kill yourself? actually can alleviate the anxiety and stress off of the person and they will find such relief in finding somebody that is safe to talk to about this and, and, and release that burden. When you hear about people who have attempted suicide, um, especially um, off, you know, off the Golden Gate Bridge, I had um, Kevin Briggs on my show, and he is a CHP officer that patrolled the Golden Gate Bridge, which is one of the biggest landmarks that has a very high, um, a high draw for people that are trying to, um, to die by suicide um, at that location. And he had to patrol that bridge and, and stop people from jumping. And the one thing that, you know, that location, I, unfortunately, um, has a very high rate. Once you jump, you know, I think it's like 0.5% actually survive that fall. And of that small percentage, every single one of them said, the moment I let go of the rail, I instantly regretted it. Not one of them said, yeah, this was the right choice. Why am I still alive? They, they instantly had that regret and you can hear some of the stories of the survivors about you know not only was that a painful and maybe even some of the mental health issues that happened afterwards um but they were at least grateful to be in the fight they still could be struggling with their mental health instead of the alternative and so we know that the impulsivity around suicide it is it's that impulsive the pain is too much and i'm making a a choice to alleviate this short-term pain you know um it's very hard to ask anybody that's in that 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 frame of mind to think about the bigger picture but when we reach across to them we have these conversations and open dialogues we check in with them you know kevin said the first thing i would ask them is you know how was your day how are you doing what you know what's going on you know really start to try to build a connection and validate where they're at that that alone can shift everything but you know there are red flags that happen that because we live such busy lives or we're scared to have these conversations or because of some ugly truths about stigma and how people still view mental health, they get missed and overlooked. And, you know, there's nothing, there's no deeper regret um, for, for anybody that has lost somebody to suicide. You know, when you hear the survivors talk, they, what did I miss? What did I not see? How did I not see this coming, right? That, that regret is, is it can, it, that guilt, it can roll into shame and cause such damage internally, which is why we see that increased risk that, yeah, you know, that, that. Yeah. so yeah, I mean, suicide, I, it's one of, it's the topic I launched my show off of mm -hmm. is, you know, suicide. That was my very first episode. I've had several episodes about suicidality and I've had suicidality, um, in my own life, I am a survivor of an attempt myself and my daughter, um, one daughter was suicidal and the other one attempted. So this hits me personally. I know from my own point of view, I've been there. I remember my 16 year old self not being able to take it anymore. And it, you know, I just, it was easier to grab the bottle of pills. Um, I know what that feels like when you think this is never gonna end. It's been going on for so long, how could it ever end? And I also know what it's like to be the caregiver standing in an emergency room, looking at your child, you know, with their, the leads on their heart, monitoring them, watching them kind of come in and out of consciousness saying, please, making that prayer, right? Having that negotiation with your higher power saying, please, you know, not today, don't just let me have my baby back, right? I've been on both sides of those coins and then I've had people in my circle um, die by suicide. And so um, this is something that I feel so passionate about because it is absolutely 100% preventable. This death is preventable. 
so can I ask you some questions about some of the things that I suspect may be myths or things that I learned? Because I worked in the late 80s um, on a crisis line. I was a volunteer on a crisis line. And I probably had about one suicide call a shift. There were other things as well. Um, but they, one of the things they taught us is that you can't talk somebody out of suicide. If somebody wants to commit suicide, they're already dead. And so anybody who is calling a crisis line is calling out for help. And um, so I'm just curious about those things because I, I haven't worked in that capacity in a long time. And was that a product of the times? Because I know that there are people that, that, that I've, I mean, I've heard that I've heard that in the context of my relative, you know, that, that if they truly want, if he truly wants to commit suicide, he will. Um, I, 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 a few thoughts on that. Um, I have heard, you know, somebody really wants to kill themselves, they, they, they will find a way. And there are some truths to that, that if someone is hell bent, um, they're going to try to find a way. But just because they can try to find a way doesn't mean that we should allow it to happen as well. Um, and in fact, like the, my very first episode, um, the gentleman that was on my show talked about the, you know, he does crisis intervention for youth. And he said, you know, this kid was swallowing batteries, right? Trying to, trying to end their life. Just because he could swallow the battery doesn't mean that we still don't rush him to the ER or try to prevent that, right? So I think there are layers. This is a complex issue. Um, I do think you can talk somebody out of suicide and, you know, kind of using those air quotes. I have been in conversations with people. Um, they may have attempted, but then they reached out to me after that attempt and I got them to the emergency room as fast as possible because it is that, that regret the moment that the pills are swallowed or, you know, whatever the, you know, um, so I think there are conversations to be had before, during and after that can help us shift outcomes in the long term. But um, it's, I mean, how sad would that be if that was true? Oh, once you make your decision, you can't be talked out of it. I mean, it's, I think about all the decisions we make every day, you know, and you know, like I think about the decisions I make with my children. Like I may be craving Thai food. I'm like, hey, what's for dinner? And I'm hoping they say Thai food. And they're like, we want pizza. And I'm like, oh, okay, pizza, right? I mean, we, they, we, we as human beings are persuadable, right? Good, bad, and indifferent. And we see that in the, playing out on a larger scale here locally and nationally, how words matter and how they can persuade, dissuade, um, confuse. So when we look at somebody who's feeling suicidal, who has a plan, um, who you know, is ready to attempt, we still can intervene and we should intervene. We can't just write that off as a lost cause because they've made up their mind. There may be something that you say to that person, a perspective that you give to that individual that they did not think of or could not think of, right? Prefrontal cortex is offline. My, you know, I'm all in my primitive amygdala fear-based brain. I can't ration, uh, rational reason. I'm not using the parts of me that can logically sequence, you know, events for the long term. My, you know, so if I am somebody in my, you know, full capacity that can de-escalate a situation and give information and a perspective that may have been new or not thought of or rings true, like really resonates with somebody, that can completely change the trajectory. Yeah, that makes and, sense. Yeah. yeah. I just, I think about that now because I was like a 22-year-old kid. Oh my God, how in over my head must I have been in there? <laughs> Absolutely. But I mean, but it's the good work. I mean, like, wait, it, this is the interesting thing about mental health is, you know, really is a brain science. And there's so, so much evolution that's happening right now, especially because the technology is catching up and it's gaining traction. So we're able to understand our brains better. So we understand how things work and then we can create interventions. Quick question. 
if I'm in, let's say I'm in a state where I just feel like I cannot go on. I'm, I'm in this moment of utter despair, hopelessness. I've heard where it, it said that just give it time, even if it's an hour, give it time. Is that enough to change how I feel from that moment of utter despair? Give it an hour, things may change, or is that just ridiculous? Um, I think there's truth in that. So there are a couple different re reasons why we want to have somebody give it an hour or a, a length of time. We know, depending on the brain, right, if I'm in a massive anxiety response, panic response, my nervous um, system has been activated. Um, the body needs a certain amount of time, usually 20 to 60 minutes to be able to calm down that nervous system response, down regulate, kind of just come back down into yourself. So if you're in a heightened state, um, your body needs time to regulate. So when I'm talking with parents and helping them try to help their children through anxiety attacks or panic attacks, that's one of the first things I let them know. You're not gonna be able to take them out with logic, consequences, and you have to wait for their systems to then regulate that. You know, the, the prefrontal cortex needs time to come back online. Um, you need to slow down, um, you know, the, the, the physical symptoms and responses. So there's, there is truth to that, that an hour can make a huge difference, right? Um, but that's not also a blanket solution. And, you know, I would hope that within that hour, you still have somebody there helping you begin to regulate your, your response physically and help you navigate it emotionally. And that's why one of the first things we, we say and we hear in training and I say to people is that if somebody is telling you that they're suicidal, number one, always take them 100% seriously. And number two, do not leave them alone. You know, so there are protocols in place that you'll start to go through um, and you don't leave somebody like that alone. So, yeah. What if someone tells me online through a private message that they just don't want to be here anymore? that they, they just wanna end it all. How would you handle a situation with an online communication like that? Going back to it's kind of not, it's hard to kind of give a blanket, you know, blanket statement, but when someone's reaching out like that for help, you know, I would try to get to that person or get somebody near that person as soon as possible. So um, I would start asking, are you alone right now? Can you call me? You know, um, can we talk? You know, um, I would try to uh, assess the situation to try to get an idea of the situation. Is there somebody near you that you can go talk to right now? Is there somebody, a trusted person, best friend that you can text right now? So I would try to get them connected to somebody as fast as possible. And, or I would ask them for an address. And what you can do at that point, if you're, if it's a distance thing, is that you can call 911 and ask them to do a welfare check, um, because there is, you know, you, it's been communicated to you that this person is, you know, actively suicidal, has, you know, high ideation and has a plan to attempt. So there's things that you can do to ensure safety. Um, sometimes, you know. I've been in situations where I've had those messages come in and they just needed someone to vent to, to be validated, to feel love from, to feel that they had a safe place to talk to. And then we organized a plan together for safety. So, um, and then connecting them into here's some crisis lines, here's some local um, folks that you can talk to. Like there's wonderful organizations like NAMI where you can text if you're in crisis. So there are great resources out there now, nowadays, but you know, I always take everything like that very seriously. And so if it's coming online, you know, look at, you know, is this somebody in your personal life or is it, you know, for someone like me, sometimes it is people that I don't know, you know, how can I make sure that they're safe? How can I plug them into resources and how can I redirect them to somebody in their personal life um, that can be a source of safety and not leave them alone? Or do I need to get it? If this is really serious, do I need to get an address so I can call 911 and have a welfare check um, executed on? So say I am a person who is suicidal right now and I'm alone 
what can I do? Or am I just, is all my thinking gone and there's nothing I can do? Well, there's always something we can do, but the, you know, kind of the problem with that is it puts so much ownership on the person that's in pain right? to, to, to do that. So I like to, you know, kind of even rewind that back to, we need to be better villages. We need to, as community members, as loved ones, as family members, we need to be checking on each other. You know, we need to be being, you know, I think the expression is being your brother's keeper, right? We, we've kind of shied away from um, being, you know, involved in other people's life because it was nosy overstepping. But I think, especially nowadays, in this different world where mental health has been affected, I think it's okay to reach out and have a better pulse on the life and the situations of the people that you love. So we can try to prevent this point from ever happening. But if you're somebody who's listening to this and you're like, Kimberly, I'm done. I just beg, beg, beg of you to either reach out to NAMI and you can text them at 741741. You can text NAMI to 741741 and they have 24 hour text crisis available or the American um, Suicide Prevention Association has a free 800 hotline that you can call night or day to get help. Please, 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 before you make that decision, reach out. It's not going to hurt for you to reach out and ask for help. You're already hurting. And if you feel like, you know what, if I can't, if I stay in where I'm at for one more moment, I am going to pull the trigger. I want you to please, if you can get yourself to the nearest emergency room, call Uber, call 911, get in your car, get yourself to the emergency room before it's too late because you cannot undo suicide. There is no rewind button. So reach out, call 911, get yourself to the emergency room, text NAMI 741741, call the suicide prevention hotline and do whatever you're, because you're so worth it. And that's what people forget is that they feel like they are a burden or that they're not worth it. They're not worthy. And your stinking thinking in this moment is taking over everything. And I'm here to tell you, you're absolutely worth it. Please do not give up on yourself. There are people out here who can and will support and love you and accept you for where you're at. There is nothing that you have done that could ever make suicide um, the right solution for you. You deserve more than that. Thank you. I appreciate all of that that you've said. And I appreciate you talking so frankly and openly about it because I think people are afraid of the conversation. Um, I know people are hugely uncomfortable with the conversation just in my recent experiences. By the way, I would like to apologize for my dog monkey. This is the time of day where she thinks that I am supposed to come open the front door for her so she can sit in the sun with the sun coming in the screen door. So you will hear her yapping and I cannot make her stop. It's I'm in a battle of wills with a five pound dog with a brain the size of a walnut and she is winning. So, but she's using every ounce of that walnut very well. Like, let She really is. She really, she is. I look at her daily and say, you are not the boss of me. And she just laughs. You know, that is the way it is in my house. Um, so I wanted to shift gear a little bit and talk about um, destigmatizing mental health issues. Because again, I a, a lot of my family members have mental health issues. I would say that while I am not necessarily in the space now, in when I was younger, I suffered from a ton of generalized anxiety, like constantly, like looping stuff. Um, and, and yeah, it was just something that, again, I'm from the 80s and being from the 80s makes things a little different. So, but it was just something that you, unless you were desperate, you didn't reach out and get help because reaching out and getting help meant that there was something wrong with you, that you were crazy. So how do we, how do we destigmatize? Yeah, I think, you know, I'm so excited in a way to see this newer generation um, really starting to 
pushback on that stigma. You know, it used to be one of those things where you would have a conversation with your friend and be like, yeah, I'm seeing a therapist. And you would kind of say therapist, like under mumbled breath to that one trusted person, because people were going to go, what are you crazy? What's wrong with you? Right? Like, why are you seeing a therapist? I even had that from my own family members. Like, oh, you think you're going to go see a psychologist and get, you know, be all fancy. And, you know, and so there was all of this, this, you know, legacy information, which I mean, really, there's so many reasons for that, that that's its own other podcast of the history of mental illness and why it was treated that way. But really, ultimately, what it was treated as stigma, right, it was treated as a care, like any mental illness, mental health problems you had was a character defect, that it was by choice, right, when we, you know, people didn't understand some of the brain science. People didn't understand that this was not a religious deficit. People did not understand that there are hereditary factors, environmental factors that play into these things. And we really didn't understand, especially the long-term impact of trauma alone. So when we look at stigma and you know, what used to be in those hush tones, and I, I grew up in those hush tones, I totally understand that, what it was and what it is now, what it still needs to be. Um, I think what we have to do is understand that the majority of us um, in today's society, I was looking at some stats today um, about trauma and um, you know, we joke around about childhood a lot. Like, um, as a parent, you know, I look at my children and I'm like, oh, honey, you just don't understand. Like in 10 years from now, none of this is going to matter. Like, you know, there's that tend to want to minimize, like, cause we see the bigger picture, but when you're a child, everything is so big, big emotions, big drama, big stuff. And so much of who we are as adults is shaped from our childhood. And we think about what happens in our childhood. One in five, the stat is one in five, which is 8.2 million high school students in the United States are bullied, including cyber bullies, bullying. Bullying causes trauma. Trauma is something that can actually alter your DNA, you know, and how is, I mean, that sh it changes your genetic coding. I mean, it's powerful stuff. So one in five children that are born and raised are, are just, just from bullying alone has gone through a significant trauma in their life. So if we were just to look at this statistic and think about how that plays out in the bigger picture, that means at least one in five of us have trauma or have had a traumatic experience. So then we start looking at the stats of how many people in their lifespan have struggled with a mental health issue at any given time in their life. And that stat is one in four. The qu a quarter of the population in the United States, at least one time in their life has dealt with anxiety, depression, postpartum, bipolar, schizophrenia, psychosis, ADHD, um, PTSD. I mean, all of this stuff, right? That's one in four. That's a quarter of the population. So, and that's only what's reported, right? That's, that's what we know, not because of stigma, what we don't know. And stigma to me is the biggest barrier to, to care still. Um, if we were to actually get the care that we needed, if we were to actually have these conversations out in the open, you know, almost loud and proud, um, we would realize that we actually have more in common because of our mental health struggles than we do uh, without them. Most of us are going through some type of thing in our life. That's, you know, that's the truth of it. So we stigmatize out of fear. We stigmatize out of this, I think, grief. We stigmatize out of this um, rigidity, you know, it's very, in, in, in a culture that has such emphasis on independence and freedom, it is frightening to some people's core to think that they may not be able to control what happens to them and how they react. It's a very scary thought for a lot of people. And so if I have to acknowledge that I have a mental health problem, 
or someone I love has a mental health problem, especially my children, I see this a lot with parents, I wasn't able to control the behavior. And I'm rigid and steadfast in my viewpoints about your behavior. That's, that's stigma expressed, which suppresses treatment. And the longer, especially adolescents go without treatment, the more exacerbated their symptomology becomes and their long-term outcomes become a little bit more bleak. We see higher rates of addiction. We see higher rates of you know, sexual promiscuity or dangerous sexuality expression. So there's, there's these real life problems, suicidality, that come from stigma. Stigma has a death rate. And it's really based in fear, rigidity, lack of control, and miseducation. As far as your being a normal platform, you offer digital online courses for parents. And there's one that I wanted to ask you about. It's the Understanding My Family Mission and Values course. And I thought the, the description was was fantastic. It's great families are created with intention, but most parents don't know where to start. And of course, there's more to it. But that one line right there is just is just I, I think it hits the nail on the head. <laughs> For me, exactly. <laughs> I say great parents are made not born. They're made. And that's why I love like, you know, <laughs> the name of your podcast, you know, intentionality. Um, I, I, I coach a lot about that. I'm incredibly pa you know, passionate about that. I think it is a driving force, especially for that course. You know, one of the most powerful questions I was asked was, what type of parent do you want to be? I didn't realize that there was a choice in my parenting style. You know, I was just going to just try to do it, quote unquote, better than my parents did. And I think a lot of people do that. Like, I just don't want to mess up my kid as much as my parents messed up me. Right. I mean, that's and that's the model that drives our reactions, our behaviors, our feelings, and our thoughts about our parenting. Parenting can be very intentional. You can create a family system that incorporates your your family culture, your family identity, but you can give it shape and you can set boundaries in a healthy way with your family system so you feel empowered and connected and validated in your home. Your home is your sacred place. It should be your sacred place. And for so many families, especially anybody who is a parent to a child with mental illness or mental health issues, home becomes a battleground. Home becomes, uh, you know, ground zero. And so to, to reclaim home, it has to start with the intention of, you know, what, what really defines us as individuals and us as family members and how do we come together cohesively? How do we honor each other, especially if there's any repair um, work that's happening in the family? You know, that also has to be laid down. And that repair work is critical because there's a lot of deep severing that comes when you have, you know, you know, psychiatric crisis in your home, when you're doing a lot of de-escalation. Um, there has to be intentionality about how do we repair and mend the family ruptures. Um, it's not just going to happen because you're spending time together. It has to be done with a framework. Where can... Uh, a family start or, or a mom or dad start? What's, what's the starting point? Um, I always say reach out to me um, and, you know, let's have a conversation about that. I mean, I have digital courses, like you mentioned, um, the digital courses I have available are mission and family values, anxiety, and anger triggers, because those are the three most common threads um, that I see parents struggling with. But that's why I also work with parents sometimes one-on-one -on -one because they're going to need that accountability and support and a safe place to vent. I think as, especially as parents or caregivers um, and maybe even women, right? Moms, we are held to this unachievable standard of, okay, um, you're mom, so you have to love unconditionally and you have to sacrifice yourself and your self-esteem and your own happiness is a direct result of your, of your child's happiness. And there's all these paradigms that you know we're trying to live up to and that sets us up to fail. And so sometimes just by talking with somebody and, and knowing that they've been there and they've done that, 
they've overcome that. There are ways to get out of this, to give yourself more understanding and a safe place to vent because we need more safe places to vent our truth. You know, there's a lot of mommy bloggers out there that want to be like, oh, parenting is great. I love my kid. But what happens when you're on the other side of that and your child is hitting you? Your child is saying awful things to you. Your child is hurting you and you have no safe place to be honest about that. That in itself can cause, its, I call it mama trauma, its own damage. So, sure. you know, have a conversation with me. <laughs> so I, I just, as you were talking, it just sort of hit me. So I realized and I'm pretty open on this podcast and in my writing and everything. So I'm not telling any stories out of out of school here, but I have what you would definitely call a very unnormal family. Um, so I, you know, we have me, the woo-woo, psychic, absent-minded, you know, earth child, flower child. My, my husband is on the spectrum. My um, transgendered stepdaughter is also on the spectrum. My son is, um, has a lot of has always had a lot of anxiety. We are a blended family. Um, and my son's father is narcissistic personality disorder, and he married a borderline personality disorder stepmother. And so we have all of these things in play. Like, uh, we, I mean, it's, it's fine now. Look, they're out of the house and we have a whole different set of ways of reacting to one another and working with one another now because we're all grownups. Um, but we had a lot of parts in motion when I had young kids and I know how we handled it, but I can't, I mean, I feel like even though I say I have a very unnormal family, I probably have a really typical family. And so how do you honor all of those parts in motion like that? Um, well, I always <laughs> joke around of a shout out when you hear your acronym, right? Like, you know, PTSD, OCD, you know, GAD, um, because it is going back to it's way more in common. You know, we have uh, so many of our families look like this behind closed doors, right? right? What you see on Instagram, what you see on Facebook is social media perfection that is not reflective of the true personal human experience that we're yeah, having under us. our rule. Yeah, exactly. I mean, honoring that, I think, you know, it, it, it's to get to a point of like honoring where you're at, there has to become acceptance. And that's one of the most difficult pieces that parents, especially that I work with, um, and, and women in, in general tend to really struggle with is the acceptance and the grieving. And that's a process of, you know, um, it's, it's a deep process of letting go of what you thought life was going to be, what you thought parenting was going to be, and the reality of your situation. So to be able to honor something, you have to be able to accept it. And when you're going through a loss and a grieving process, that has to be kind of the first stop to allow space to reconcile that you, your, your expectations of your life and the reality of your life are very, very different. And a lot of people try to stay in that expectation or fight to get to the expectation versus allowing the reality to be what it is. And so once you can start to come to a level of acceptance, you know, my, my, the mission of being a normal is expose, educate, and empower because you have to expose those wounds. You have to expose those bias systems. You have to expose those legacy parenting idea, you know, ideologies. So then you can educate yourself. You come to the acceptance, you get the knowledge and the education. So you, you're able to then better understand truly what's happening. And then you can empower yourself. And when you get to that empowered place, you can honor then the system because the family system, because you have this level of acceptance and even come to a place of being proud, right? Wearing your labels with pride. That's really when you get to that place, you know, that's when you see stigma really start to break and, and break apart and lose its power. And that's ultimately what we want to get. And that's that honoring. It can happen, but you have to, you, you have to go through the muck to get to that, to get to the, to the top of the mountain. And it's, it, it is that journey. Um, every piece of that journey 
has to be honored, not just like the end result, but every piece of that journey with inside of you. Yeah, I honestly look back now and I kind of go, wow. (laughs) When I was in it, it was just like, okay, well, this is now. So this is what we're going to (laughs) do. I mean, so we just, you know, I, I am lucky enough that I just am like a pretty now, once I got over all the anxiety stuff, I'm like, all right. And I think I kind of, you know, Chad from Saturday Night Live. Okay. That's how, <laughs> I got through. That's how I kind of got through everything. Okay. All right. I love Chad. I love Chad so much. <laughs> I know I relate to him because I do. I look my hindsight now of looking back at all of the stuff that we did and went through. It was a blessing and a gift. And I adore my family. But looking back now, I just think how I how was I even equipped? I think you just go. You just go and do. And I think parents nowadays, I think, you know, back then it was the go and the do. And now I think parents are getting reflective and say, there's got to be a better way than this, right? This, this isn't working. There's got to be something else I can do. And once parents get to that point, that's typically when they find me. Um, Because when we're just going through it, like just kind of handling it, typically we're also isolating and, and we're doing it alone. And that feeds stigma because we're not allowing ourselves to have the relationships. And we know relationships or social creatures and animals, those relationships are important. And we don't have villages taking care of our children anymore. We are the village where those lone, lonely island, reaching out for support, having that companionship during this process of acceptance, grieving, integration, and empowerment is, is it allows somebody to say, wow, I've got this. I know I can handle this instead of like, oh gosh, this is just how, you know, I'm just going to try to muddle through it. That's the empowerment piece, which is so important for me and my mission. So people don't have to feel like, oh, I just got to figure this out somehow versus I got this. Come at me. Like I can handle this. Like, oh, yeah. you, you know, you're, you're having psychosis, you know, like I walk into situations where people are like, you know, talking to Satan and I'm like, okay, well, this is what we do. Right. I mean, like, I mean, that's, and that's my life, <laughs> but you know, um, it, it really is because I know what my toolbox is so stocked full and because we don't have, again, going back, we don't have these conversations and certainly not around parenting. People never go, well, what's going to happen if your child's autistic, right? You're just happy and glowing and pregnant. We don't plan for these situations. So we're not having the conversation. So people don't have tools in the toolbox. It takes a lot to get those. And when I was, you know, when my daughter was in crisis, uh, you know, this was now what, four or five years ago, a lot has changed. There's so much more information out there now, thankfully. But when I was going through this, I was like, where's vetted, solid information? How I'm, I'm a pretty smart person. How can I get some tools to help me navigate this? You know, where can I find people that are not just surrendering and giving up on their children, but want to be in the fight for them? Where, where, where's that community? Where are those resources? And I couldn't find them, which is why I created being a normal. I was like, once I get out of this, I am going to be the, you know, hello, Gandhi. I'm going to be the change I want to see in the world. So that was kind of the impetus. If I get through this, I'm going to pay it forward. And so, you know, that's kind of a big, well-rounded way of saying, you know, like we've, we've got to, um, We've got to empower ourselves and give that gift to ourselves. We we deserve to invest in ourselves, our toolboxes as caregivers and parents. We're so worried about skill building for the children or, you know, navigating these fires. But what about us? What about our needs and our uh, mental health as caregivers? That's just as important too. Yeah, you know, actually, as you were saying that, it, you said something, and it, it just made me realize something that I never had realized before. And that was that I, that's exactly what I did was isolated. I just head down, isolated, and dealt with it. And um, I mean, you know, I tell people all the time, because I've been an empty nester for like seven, eight years now, the kids are grown, one of them's married, you know, all of that. And I tell everybody, gosh, I was so afraid of being an empty nest and it's great. And maybe the reason that it feels so great is because exactly what you were saying, because 
I wasn't there in all of that. I was there and I was engaged and I was chatting my way through things, but I wasn't there taking care of myself. Yeah, I think the reason why we laugh at Chad, we love Chad, but we laugh at Chad is because Chad is physically there, but he's certainly not cognitively there, right? Oh, right. So that's, I think that's what we do. We are physically there, but we may not be cognitively there and we may be emotionally totally checked out, but it's entertaining nevertheless. So um, no, isolation's huge. And that's why I love working with parents one-on-one, -on -one, it pulls them intentionally out of that isolation. Yeah. Cheryl's husband's name is Chad, by the way. <laughs> oh, he is so livid over that new show. Chad. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. He's so livid for hey, some reason. His name isn't Karen. Come, like, on. Come on. I know, you know, <laughs> Chad and Karen. He says Chad and Karen are like a new representative of, of, not good things that I'm like, ah, get over it. <laughs> so, sorry. No, that's hilarious. <laughs> and, you know, the actor that plays Chad uh, on Saturday Night Live, you know, he's been very vocal about his mental health struggles. Yeah, um, yes. He's gone through the gamut. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And he's been, I, I think it's been really helpful how open he is because it's that destigmatizing thing again and I, I it's, it's just look my grandmother was um diagnosed bipolar although they called it manic depressive back then and she had shock treatments and was never the same again and that I mean that shock treatment I, I get that that's just what they thought that they did at the time but it was to make her normal or yeah, socially yeah. acceptable. Well, I mean, you know, our crazy aunts and uncles, you know, back in the beginning of the 19th century would just put up in the in the attic. Oh, this crazy uncle William lives in the attic. Don't mind him. I mean, we we shut away our sick, you know, and and it was a little bit when we look at mental health treatment, it was a lot of throwing spaghetti at the walls and seeing what stuck. Um, because even when we think about, we would call it shock treatment then, but now, you know, it's called ECT and there are some amazing things that are happening with ECT, um, therapies, but it's a, so much more researched controlled. We, we, we can see the brain now we, we can do the imaging. We, you know, the science has come a long ways, but we look at shock treatments. We look at lobotomies. We just used to stick things in people's brain and stir it around like soup. I mean, Oof, you know, when we look at that, well, no wonder there's some stigma, right? Because, you know, you sent in Aunt Millie and she came back turtle soup. I mean, like, it, it's, you know, it, it was, it, I can see how it could have been so easy to be like, what is, you know, what is this, right? Thankfully, especially in the last 10 years, there's been a lot of, um, a lot of amazing, you know, advances. In, in brain science. And I actually was just talking with um, the, the director of the Center for Research at uh, OHSU, uh, the ADHD Research Center, you know, talking about, you know, inflammatory markers and what we know from the, uh, the Human Genome Project and what that's been able to give us so we can understand the body and all kinds of stuff. And, you know, I think there's still much, so much more to come. And I'm really excited to see how things unfold with that. But, um, yeah, I mean, even naming conventions like manic depressive versus bipolar. Um, you know, we do the best with what we have during the time of the life that we live. And we, at least for me, hope that the next generation continues that and continues to dial it in and get it right. Because there are people out there like, you know, uh, Joel, who was on my show yesterday, you know, they're looking for the cure for ADHD. They want to figure it out. They want to see how they can prevent it and they're fine they're doing these studies that they're starting to find ways that they can start interventions at the you know pregnancy level to help mitigate some of this which to me i didn't think that there would be a cure for mental illness in my lifetime and it's it's so hopeful to me that there are people out there doing the work to, to try to find find that um, but in the meantime it takes all of us coming together 
to destigmatize, understand that these are things that are happening in the brain that some people do not have control over. And um, being empathetic and loving to those people, um, that, that's gonna make the difference in our lifetime, in our current day-to-day life for ourselves and for others. Yeah, I like that. That's, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. It's, you're, you're making me think about a lot of things. That's why there are these long, awkward pauses, because I'm thinking about what you're saying. And it's just, I mean, first of all, I think the thing that we have to get rid of is the idea that, that there is such thing as normal yeah. or ideal and just yeah. accept people for who they are. But yes. I know one of the things I wanted to ask you, um, because as you are aware, I take sometimes a little more woo approach to things. And one of the things that I've recognized as in our younger generation um, is that they are wired very differently than us. And I believe it's an evolutionary phase. And I believe that we're diagnosing things that are not diagnosable. In other words, we're calling things that are just another state of evolutionary a diagnosis. And so, well, I do recognize because I've, I've, you know, I worked as a guardian at litem and worked in the, um, in the, uh, you know what I mean? Uh, I, with abused and neglected kids and, yeah. um, in the dependency system. And I've, I recognize that there is a, there are things that are medically at issue. I know the ADHD is a real thing. I have seen it in action. I know that autism is a real thing. I have it in my life and see it in action every day, you know? So, so with those things in mind, but I also think that we overdiagnose and we diagnose things that are simply evolutionary things from a new generation of beings coming to us who are actually more highly evolved than us that we're trying to shove into a box of our previous understanding. And so I'm curious about what your take is on that. I think it's to be continued on that. You know, I think that's the beauty of time is that time will kind of show us, you know, what, how that all unfolds. Um, I think we're, I think we're looking at, you know, the cross sections of ideologies and and belief systems. And I don't think that there's a wrong way necessarily, unless it's harmful to look at any of this. Uh, I think, you know, for me in my world, right, kind of the polar opposite is I don't see enough diagnosis, proper diagnosis, right? So I see kids not getting proper treatment and then ending up in the emergency room trying to kill themselves or ending up in juvenile detention, with, you know, with having conduct problems because they were misdiagnosed and mistreated, mismedicated. Um, and then when we got them on a corrective course, that child was able then to be in their full expression. So I think these two dualities live concurrently. And I think both, both of these can be true at the same time. We can have mental health disorders and we can be evolving as you know, people Absolutely. and spiritual beings. I think it takes each one of us to do the discernment on that. Um, you know, serious mental illness will shake itself out in due course, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Um, and a spiritual evolution can be explored with a coach or a, a lightened therapist or a mentor. So there are different ways to look at all of these sides of the coin because we're so multifaceted and there's so many sides to us as individuals that we can look at all, all of this, the, 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 the cuts of the prism that make us each beautiful and individual. Yeah, I think that's. I, I, I love that you say that. I The reason that I ask that, honestly, is because I have been really open that I have had a lot of anxiety. And I would say 90% of my anxiety was not brain function. It was trying to shove myself into a box that I felt like. And, and I get that my experience is unique and that not everybody's doing that. And that there is, and I have people with genuine chemical neurological mental health issues in my family as well so we have both of those things but um are you seeing a coming together of those things in the mental health field where there's a recognition that perhaps some of it is more of a spiritual or um 
existential, I guess, even. Yeah, I I mean, there are existential psychologists, right, that specialize in this. There are holistic psychologists that specialize in this more kind of earthy, grounded psychological approach, right? Inside the field of psychology, there's so many different fields of approaches and so many different um, intervention strategies. And that's, it's not a one size fits all. When I look at you know, EMDR versus exposure response therapy versus what most people think of as talk therapy or, you know, um, cognitive behavioral therapy, C, uh, CBT, which is kind of the, the quote unquote gold standard of therapy is what most people do. But some people find expression in art. Some people find expression in, in advancing their spirituality. Do what works for you, harm none, right? So as long as you're leaning in to continue what I, that's why I call like self-help personal development. You know, I say that I'm not your mama self-help, right? You're trying to evolve as yourself to lean into the truest expression of you. Um, there are some things that are genetically, biologically dispositioned. You know, there are some things that are socially conditioned, right? We, we, sh- we can explore all of that dichotomy. There's no wrong or right, right way to look at it except to ignore it. So if you're feeling anxiety about maybe some, like try to fit into the spiritual box, I know a lot of psychologists that will be like, well, let's explore this. Let's alleviate that anxiety. Um, so find, find your right people to help you explore and navigate that for yourself. That's this, that's this great advice. And I wish we could talk about this forever <laughs> because it's this all so critically important. But well, there'll be other podcasts. There you know. will be, there will be, but bum, we're bum, here. And we usually conclude with the question, well, before we, we do our little promotional corner, we conclude with the question of, can you tell us how you use intention in your life not, I mean, it doesn't have to be every day, but consistently. So do you want to talk about that? Always. I, I, I use intention every day. No, um, <laughs> you know, one of the, the, the easiest tools for intention that I use in my everyday life is affirmations. Um, and I, 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 when I work with my clients, I'm very big on affirmations. I call them mental vitamins. Like these are your mental vitamins. You're setting your intention with yourself. You're, I mean, in the science of affirmations, you're rewiring your neural pathways and all of that good stuff. There's really great science behind why affirmations work. Um, but at the core, it is to me, intention is life by design. And, you know, a lot of people say they want X, Y, Z in their life, but they don't have a system in place. Intentionality gives you that desire and that yearning to set these systems in place to create the life. Like, and in here I'm showing this is, you know, my daily practice is a journal. I put in my affirmations and my gratitude here, my little journal, which is a guinea pig with a unicorn horn. Um, But this is the intention work. When I sit down, I think about who I am and who I want to be and how I want to show up in my life. I do that with a system of affirmations. I, I, I do that daily. And so, you know, Showing up with intention is life by design. It's really you going back to my mission, taking that empowerment piece and making it a verb instead of just an adjective. I love that. That's awesome. Very good. Now, tell us where our listeners can find you online or social media. We're all about <laughs> shameless self-promotion here. Shameless so. self-promotion. <laughs> come, no, come find me. Come find me. I love, I love chatting with people. Drop in my DMs. So you can, I, you can go to my website, www.beingunnormal.com, uh, UN normal, unnormal. And when you get there, uh, there'll be a little pop-up that says, join the unnormal nation. I launched a face private Facebook group to just build community, right? To take out of the isolation. So you can come be a part of the Unnormal Nation on Facebook. I'm on Instagram under the Being Unnormal. So come follow me there or our Facebook page Being Unnormal. Um, I'm there too. You'll see, you know, daily content and posting. And then of course the podcast is available wherever podcasts are listened to, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. And we have all of the episodes on the website as well, beingunnormal.com. 
And as long as you sent that to us, it'll be in our show notes as well. So people yes. can find you by also clicking on the links in the show notes. So, thank you so much. This has been an important conversation. I feel like we scratched the surface and I hope that you will come back and we can have another conversation and talk about different things and maybe not start off with the heaviest of stuff right in the beginning. Oh, please. That'll scare me. No, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much, Cheryl and Karen, for having me here today. Anytime you want me to come back, I'm more than happy to because I love having these dialogues that make you think, right? So thank you so much. You did. You made me oh. think a lot for sure. So that is Kimberly Berry. Um, hey, Cheryl, you know, our next podcast, we don't know who our guest is going to be, but Chuck is going to be joining us as a, uh, in his, his on, on, on again, off again, co-hosting thing. He asked me about it when I, we have a meeting once a month. Um, and he said, so when are we going to do it? And I said, well, you told me July. So that's my plan. So Chuck will be joining us for the next one. And we just need to find a guest. Yay, we'll do that. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of Intention is Everything. We hope that you will join us again in a few weeks because we will be rejoined by our old pal, Chucky D. So, hey, have a good day.